Good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. It's good to be back. Uh, let's go ahead and have prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. We ask that your spirit will join us, that our minds will be enlightened, and our ch- characters to be transformed to be like you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. We're doing lesson number three in the quarterly Christ and His Law, and the title this week is uh, Christ and Religious Tradition. And the memory text this week is out of Matthew fifteen eight nine. It says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. And then in the first paragraph, it says, John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, suggested that one's theology is influenced by four factors, faith, reason, scripture, and tradition. He didn't mean, however, that all signs are equally authoritative. He acknowledged that the Bible was foundational, but he also recognized that one's individual faith, ability to reason, and religious tradition affect the way in which the person inter- the Bible is interpreted. If Wesley were brought back to life today, he would be shocked to discover that many modern theologians in the Wesleyan tradition and other traditions as well now value reason, tradition, or personal opinion over the clear teachings of Scripture. Any thoughts about that? Yeah. Well, my first thought, my first thought was, um, if our ability to understand scripture is impacted by our own intelligence and ability to comprehend and reason, then whose clear teaching of scripture is a lesson talking about? You follow what I'm saying here? In other words, they suggest that many people value their reason over the clear teaching of scripture, but isn't that just a problem? Those who those they accuse of valuing reasoning over the clear teaching of scripture could turn around and say back to them, you value your opinion over the clear teaching of scripture because we understand the scripture teaches something different and it's so clear to us (laughs) that that's what it teaches. (laughs) Isn't that right? Isn't that why there's so much debate in these things? So the question I thought would be appropriate as we go through today is how can you tell? How can you tell what is clear teaching and what is just opinion? How can you tell? Theoretically, how could you understand the scripture without reason? Well, that's why God says in Isaiah 1, the name of our class comes from this verse, Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, will be white like snow. Red like crimson, will be made like wool. Or Paul says in Romans 14, Let every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. Or in Hebrews uh, 5.14, The mature are those who develop by practice the ability to discern the right from the wrong. So we have to actually exercise those abilities God has given us in order to hone that skill to discern. And so I thought maybe we'll we'll practice this a little bit here. Last week I was at uh, California and I was presenting the God in Your Brain seminar during question-answer time. uh, A particular individual put the question forward that comes fairly frequently from another segment of Christianity that challenging this idea that the Bible does not teach penal substitution theology. And we take the position the Bible does not teach penal substitution theology. It teaches a healing substitution model. They asked uh, about the legal language in Romans and the epistles of Paul and said, doesn't, isn't it clear that Paul's talking about a legal problem in these things? So, and they had a couple of texts they quoted. How would you answer the question? He says there's nothing wrong with legal. It depends on how you interpret God's law. Well, let me ask you, uh, how about if you ask him, what, what, what language are you reading the Bible in? Might it make a difference depending on the language that you're reading the Bible in? Yes, Wendell. And that's the translators translate based on what they understand as well. Brilliant. Brilliant. You hear what Wendell said? Translators translate based on their understanding of what they're reading, don't they? 
Yeah, that's what they do. So think about this. I'd go farther and say that Paul was a lawyer. So something that um, a, a reference he would think of would be something more related to what he was used to law-wise. Well, when did all current Bible translations occur? Before or after Constantine converted? Every translation is after Constantine. And what happened in Christianity when Constantine converted? In fact, with paganism is one way to say it. How, how might we say it in relation to law? Romans Exactly right. Prior to that, if you read the New Testament, it's all about the law of love. It's all about every, every law hangs upon love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength, and neighbor as yourself. You keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing what is right. Over and over again, the law of the New Testament is, and the law of Bible is God's design protocol. The law, God who is love created his universe to operate on protocols. And when you deviate from those, it's, it's destructive. When Constantine converted, however, they began to view God running his universe like a Roman emperor runs Rome with a list of imperial dic- uh, <coughs> dictated rules that require imposement of external punishments for deviation. This is how it became to be seen. And then Christianity becomes infected with this. It enters in and it deviates away from self-sacrificial communal living to crusades, inquisitions, and dark ages. And in this frame, translations of the Bible came. People with with this indoctrinated view of God and his law went and translated the word. And so they project in to the translation legal things that don't exist. One of the most common, in fact, I would probably say the the, um, verse that people who hold the penal view put forward most frequently as proof of their view is, is Romans chapter 3, 21 through 26. I'm going to read it to you out of the NIV. It says, But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice, because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so that he might be just, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Now, that was clear to everybody, right? Do you hear how this could sound legal? And this is actually used um, as as a defense. And by the way, let me read verse 25 of the King James, the New King James. It says, whom God set forth as a propitiation. Remember this word? The propitiation. And that's in the uh, NIV is translated as sacrifice of atonement. This is translated as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he left, he passed over the sins that were previously committed. So, do you hear legal problems and legal solutions? How can this be? Well, one fact, the translators are coming with a mindset that already believe they understand God's law, and in order to have a just universe, you have to have just punishments for the breaking of law because they're viewing it through imperial dictated law rather than design protocol. And the other factor is, in English, our legal language is what-based? Latin-based. And these words justify, expiate, propitiate, they're all Latin-based. And so in our own culture, we have this undercurrent theme that this sounds very legal because our own system has got a lot of legal language that sounds this way. 
But the Bible doesn't actually present this. Let me, let me, let me go through this. The, the word translated sacrifice of atonement and propitiation, the Greek word is hilosterion. And that word is actually the word for the lid to the Ark of the Covenant. It's a noun. Get your mind what I'm saying. This is a noun. It's the lid to the Ark, the covering on the Ark. That's what it is, made out of gold. That's hilosterion. And when the uh, translators read it, they read that and they projected in what they believed happened in the Old Testament sanctuary system at the lid on the Day of Atonement. And what did they think happened? Appeasement. That the blood was being offered to expiate, to, to, um, to pay penalty, and to do this legal transaction going on at the lid. But that's not what it, what it actually means at all. When you, see, when you see the God's laws, the design protocols, and I want you to think, I'm not going to give you this right away. Go back and relook at the blood going into the sanctuary. What does the scripture say the blood represents? That's biblical, right out of Leviticus. The life is in the blood, okay? And the and the and the blood is a representative of the animal, and the animal is representative of Christ. So this is the life of Christ representative going in here, right? Now, what does the life of Christ do? Heal. It heals. It restores. It's the remedy. We are to Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. He wasn't talking cannibalism. What was he talking? When Paul says, it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. He's talking about we are to be Christ-like inside. We are to partake of the life of Christ. We are to be ingest the character and, and life of Christ. That's what he's telling us. The Old Testament system, the blood was symbolically demonstrating or symbolizing the internalization of Christ. But and, and that's a healing process, a regenerative process. And if you think of all the metaphors of Scripture, think of those metaphors. Take out the heart of stone, put it in a heart of flesh. Circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. Get, get reborn, get regenerated, get recreated, get cleansed, have the law written on the heart and mind. Do you notice all these metaphors are pointing us towards something that's actually happening in the believer? But if you have an imperial model and you have rules that are broken, you have penalties that need to be paid, then suddenly the blood of Christ gets, gets converted into something other than the life that he has shed for us, that he gives to us to heal us. Instead, now what does it become? It becomes a contaminating agent. And the blood goes into the sanctuary and transfers sin. And the sanctuary becomes contaminated. And it becomes representative of death. And it's the, the blood represents the death of Christ that pays the penalty. Instead of being the life of Christ, which the scripture says, it's now death and sin. Now, are you all following me or, or have I lost you? Are you familiar with the many teachings and, 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 and writings that have suggested that the blood of Christ confers sin into the sanctuary? Or the blood of Christ represents his death. Are you, are you familiar with how it's presented this way? You know, none of that is in Scripture. That is projected in in the same way that people project legal stuff into Romans. It's not there. So my paraphrase of that Romans text, 3.21 through 26, says, but now God has revealed a healthy state of being, a character that is right and perfect in every way that did not come from the written code, but is exactly what the scriptures and the Ten Commandments were pointing your minds toward. 
This perfect state of being comes from Christ and is created within us by God when we trust him. Our trust in him is established by the evidence given through Jesus Christ of his supreme trustworthiness. There is no difference amongst amongst any ethnic group, for all humanity is infected with the same disease of distrust, fear, and selfishness, and are deformed in character and fall far short of God's glorious ideal for mankind. Yet all who are willing are healed freely by God's gracious remedy that he has provided by Jesus Christ. God presented Jesus as the way and means of restoration. That's the lid, the hilasterion, the way and means of restoration. Now, through trust established by the evidence God's character revealed when Christ died, we may partake of the remedy procured by Christ. God did this to demonstrate he is right and good because in his forbearance he suspended for a time the ultimate consequences of being out of harmony with how he designed life to exist and has been falsely accused of being unfair. So he did it to demonstrate how right and good he is at the present time. So he would be be seen as being right when he heals those who trust in Jesus. What do you think? It's okay to disagree. We're li- you don't have to go along with I say in here all the time, I'm not here to tell you what to think. I'm here to challenge you to think for yourself. Weigh it out for yourself. Come to your own conclusion. Well, one of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church wrote this more than 100 years ago, 120 years ago. It's published in a book called Desire of Ages, page 762. See which version this corresponds with, that penal, imperial, legal version, or this regenerative, recreative version that I was talking about. The law requires... You guys know that. You guys know the quote, but what's historically taught? The law requires a penalty be paid. That's what's taught in Christianity. No, the law requires righteousness, a righteous life, a perfect character. This man has not to give. He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law, but Christ coming to earth as man, lived a holy life and developed a perfect character. This he offers as a free gift to all who will receive them. His life stands for the life of men. Thus they have remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. More than this, Christ imbues man with the attributes of God. He builds up the human character after the similitude of the divine character, a goodly fabric of spiritual strength and beauty. Thus, the very righteousness of the law is fulfilled in the believer in Christ. Now, this is a quote from Scripture. God can be just and the justifier of him that believes in Jesus. So this author was connecting this Romans passage, not with legal penalties, not with, uh, not with some type of price being paid or XP. It's, it's, it's actually connecting the justice of God with the restoration and healing of the sinner back to righteousness. That's what's right. That's what's just. And righteousness simply being that rightness of the heart, not the external of the, the symbol, and understanding God's incredible character of love, and within that that blood of Christ washes through your soul and heals and brings life and breath and is awesome. Exactly. So how can we tell the difference between Bible, true Bible teaching, and man-made teachings? Does it reflect God's character? Does it? Does it? Love that. Love that. Does it, does it reflect God's character? Does it bring life? In other words, does it heal? Is it restorative? Russell, you said something? I was adding, does it reflect God's character of love? Yeah. Some people have God's character being arbitrary and vengeful. Does it God you believe in? Yes. It also has to reflect a harmony that can really only come from God, from a single source, a single spirit, in, inspiring the whole Bible. 
whole Bible history all the way. Through. Oh, I like that. Uh, that the Bible, uh, take the Bible as a whole, looking for the grand central theme that all the parts connect together. That's exactly right. When we start dividing it up and dissecting it up, we get into trouble. Man-made teachings are always infected with self. And the number one, as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were. Right. So man-made teachings will always incite fear. They'll make you afraid. They'll make you insecure. That's what man-made teachings do. They're infected with self, infected with imposed rules, incite fear, incite insecurity, lead away from God's design, fail to actually heal and transform. And man's teachings, you'll find, are inconsistent, irrational, and often don't make any sense to anyone who's willing to think. And so then we come in with teachings like, well, we, we don't ask questions because we have faith. And if God said it, we believe it. There's no questions asked. We don't, we don't ever even consider anything else because the Bible said it. Because, because if we would question what we teach that the Bible says, not what the Bible actually says, we would find confusion. So examples. It is sin to walk more than so many feet on Sabbath. This was, uh, I didn't make this up. This was in Christ's day. They had a, a restriction on how many feet you could walk on Sabbath. If you walk so many feet, it's sin. Or it's sin to carry a handkerchief on Sabbath, but if you pin it to your clothing, it's not sin. Another rule that they had in Christ's day 2,000 years ago. Um, it's sin to help a person on Sabbath, but it's not sin to lift your donkey out of the ditch on Sabbath. But to help a human being, it's sin. To help a donkey, it's not sin. You see why Christ had problems with them. These people, there's somebody sick, the Samaritan, beaten by the side of the road, made in the image of God. We, we're not going to help him on Sabbath. In fact, we won't help him at all because he's a Samaritan. But a Jew, we won't even help on Sabbath. We have to wait till sunset. You'll have to sit there and suffer. Hope you make it till the sun's down. No CPR till the sun's down. <laughs> but the donkey, the donkey we can help on Sabbath. Hmm. What one eats make, makes one righteous or unrighteous. Now I'm starting to meddle, aren't I? <laughs> or the opposite side of that irrational thought is it doesn't matter what one eats because all things are ceremonially clean. They're both man-made rules. You see, what you eat will not make you righteous or unrighteous. But what you eat can make you healthy or unhealthy. And so this idea that because things are no longer ceremonially unclean, we can eat anything we want. We can if you're only concerned about ceremonial cleanliness. But if you're actually concerned about health, then you can't eat anything because if you're concerned about health, then your diet will actually damage you. And in fact, studies show that people eat junk food and fast food regularly, 40% higher rate of depression. 40% higher rate of depression than people who don't eat junk food and fast food. Why? Because junk food and fast food are highly inflammatory. Inflammation alters the neurobiology of the brain contributing to depression. When you have depression, you're less capable of serving God and serving others. You're less capable of giving of yourself. You're less capable of understanding uh, truth from error. You're more vulnerable to temptation. And you ultimately become a burden on others who have to care for you while you're depressed. Rather than you. So, yes, it doesn't determine ultimate righteousness or unrighteousness, salvation or, or loss. But it determines your fitfulness for usefulness in God's kingdom right now. So, both sides of that coin. Well, I'll eat my way into heaven. When we talk about fitfulness and usefulness, also, it's the compromised relationship. And, and the loss of that individual to also understand and appreciate the caring, loving God that wants so much for their best good. Exactly. How about this one? People are saved or lost based on which day they worship. Uh-oh. No way. <laughs> Man-made rule or God-made rule? Man-made. 
One, can be, one can't be saved unless one has the right words spoken over them during baptism. If you get the wrong words, you can't be saved. It doesn't count. They're the right words. If you haven't heard this? Yeah. How about one can't be saved unless a priest does some ritual? Or one can't be saved unless one partakes communion? Or one can't be saved unless one is a member of a particular organization? Man, are any of these God rules? None. These are all man-made rules. Do you notice how they all incite fear? Oh, if I didn't do it right, the words weren't said right. Oh, oh, if, 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 if. They're all fear-induced. They're not relationship-based, are they? No. In the Bible, there's only ever two groups. What, you know, that doesn't really take into account all these religions and all that. There's only the good, the bad. The, the righteous and the unrighteous. The wheat and the tares. You're in one or the other. You're not in you know, a subsection of that. So all these things I put down, do you notice how some of them might have been based on the design protocols, but they've taken, or, or a teaching tool that God has given, but they've taken the teaching tool and they made the teaching tool become the, the, the reality, so to speak, that we had to respond to, rather than just trying to understand the greater reality behind it. For instance, baptism. Baptism by water is given by God. As a teaching tool. Understand what I'm saying here? It is a teaching tool. What is it designed to teach? What is baptism by water designed to teach? It's symbolic of being immersed in Christ. It's symbolic of immersing the mind, body, soul, spirit into the Holy Spirit, dying to self, rising with an entire new being. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. The old is gone, the new has come. It's symbolic of that. But the water is not the reality of that. Can, will there be people in heaven who've never been baptized by water? Yes. Will there be people in heaven who've never been baptized by the Spirit? No. no. Everybody in heaven will have been immersed and changed and transformed by the Spirit. Okay? That's exactly right. And, and yet, people use these things as tests of some kind and make God out to look horrible. How about the This is what the Jews did regularly. God had to, God's truth actually heals and brings peace, but, but the, the, when they take some truth of God and turn it, they can actually turn it into something that actually injures. Baptism's a truth that can be turned in a way that injures. Sabbath is evidence of God's character given in a time in history when his character and methods were called into question. Sabbath, therefore, becomes a sign. And what do signs do? Think about signs. What do signs do? They point you. They give you directions. They give you information. They educate. They illuminate. They reveal. But are signs the reality of where you're going? Interesting, isn't it? What happens if one makes the sign into the ultimate test and destination? You don't get to the destination. There you go. That's exactly right. Then it becomes an arbitrary test. The sign becomes an arbitrary test of obedience. And you end up wanting Christ off the cross before sunset so you can keep the Sabbath of the God you just killed. But we kept the sign. We've got the sign. We must be right. Do you see how you can become an enemy of God when you take something he's given as a teaching tool, a sign, a a directive, if you will, to, to give direction, but you turn it into some arbitrary test. What's an arbitrary test? An imposed rule without inherent consequence. It puts you back in the Roman camp. God's health laws were not rules or tests of obedience, but protections to promote health. So uh, 
just like a parent who gives a rule for their child to brush their teeth. But this is, let's imagine this. Children grow up and have this rule, they have to brush their teeth, and they, they turn it into a test of obedience, and, and they require all members of their organization to be teeth brushers. And they reject anyone and accuse as rebellious those who refuse to brush their teeth, even though they're using a water pick twice a day. <laughs> they don't brush, they use water pick. They're, they're, they're lost. Wait, they missed the whole point, don't they? Isn't the point about keeping your teeth healthy? Yes, but we have a rule that you were to brush. God gives guidance to help teach us principles, to help teach us uh, how to keep our minds and hearts in unity with him. And we make rules out of them and then start dividing people up on who keeps the rule and who doesn't, not whose heart is right. Sunday's lesson, third paragraph. In saying that the scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, Jesus acknowledged their position as teachers of the people. After all, at least they had taken the responsibility to ensure that the people were instructed in the ways of the law. When you read that, does it sound like they're giving them at least one kudo? Does it sound like, well, at least they did that. That's a good thing. Does it sound like this is a good thing they're suggesting here? Yes. Only Russell's listening right now. But doesn't it lessen, make it sound like this was a good thing they did? They taught them the law. Let's look at Scripture and see what Jesus said. Was it good or was it not good? Starting in Matthew 23, verse 13. Matthew 23, verse 13. Woe to you, teachers of the law. And Pharisees, you hypocrites, you shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourself do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much the son of hell as you are. Just stop and think about that. What were they teaching? The law. The law. And what was the result of their teaching the law? Driving people that are away from God. Yes, this was not a good thing they were doing. They were not bringing people close to Christ. They were actually deepening them in the darkness and misunderstanding about God, making it harder, putting more barriers up, and trapping them into the satanic view of who God is. This is what they were doing. Why? Well, what kind of law did they teach? External. Imperial, imposed laws, rules that must be kept with no inherent consequence for breaking, requiring a, a, a sovereign overlord to a, examine breaches in the law and impose proper penalties. Yes? Why did he tell them to observe what they told him to do in verse 3? So read verse 3. Therefore, all that they tell you to do, do and observe, but do not according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. Okay. So, for instance, uh, the, uh, the health laws. Are you actually healthier if you eat the way God has instructed them to eat than if you don't? So, yes. So, yes, you want to follow the health laws, but does that become a test of righteousness or not? So God was telling them, what, some of the things they're teaching you to do, what they're teaching you, they're, in, they're, they're going to bring better health, they're going to protect you, but you need to understand a deeper reason and motive. Don't be caught under this blind, arbitrary system of rules that they're giving you. Go beyond what the, their righteousness isn't righteousness, he said. And if we, if we go through the rest of this passage, I think it'll become clear as he exposes the problem. I don't think he wanted them to do some of, this, some of the stuff like uh, Corban. Remember Corban? If you, uh, you know, honor, he said, you do away with the law of God, honor your mother and father with Corban. Because with Corban, you can take all your inheritance and say, I name my, my property Corban, which means when I die, it goes to the temple, which means I'm not allowed to use it for my parents' upkeep anymore. I get to keep it all for me until I die. Okay? 
I don't think he was telling them to, to observe that instruction. Do you think? No. no. So, so when he says observant, he's probably understood the ones that are actually right observe, but, but not the ones that are actually distorted from God's cause. Um, let's, let's, I'm going to read to you now, if you want to follow along in your Bible so you can see uh, how I do this, I'm going to read to you now this Matthew 23. I'm going to take you through some of my paraphrase of this, starting in verse thir- 13. And, and uh, you can follow through on, on your uh, actual translation there if you'd like. Starting verse 13. Misery is yours. You who teach illegal religion, you penal theologians, you counterfeits. Your, your false teachings obstruct people from being healed and entering God's kingdom of love. You certainly are not healed, and you do not enter into salvation. But worse, you actively work to prevent others who, are, who want to be saved from being healed. Misery is yours, you teachers of illegal religion, you penal theologians, you counterfeits. You go around the world trying to convert one person, and when you do, you indoctrinate them so deeply into your false penal system, they become twice the child of lies and selfishness as you are. Misery is yours, you irrational and unthinking teachers. Unbelievably, you say, if anyone swears by the temple, it doesn't count. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, then they are bound by the oath. You make no sense at all. Think about it. Which is truly more important, the gold or the temple that makes the gold holy? Another of your sayings is, if anyone swears by the altar, it doesn't count. But if anyone swears by the gift on the altar, they are bound by the oath. You don't understand the simplest truths. Think about it. Which is truly most important, the gift or the altar that makes the gift holy? Don't you get it? The one who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and the one whose dwelling place it is. It is about integrity, honesty, fidelity, such that oaths are sworn before heaven, God's throne, and the one who sits on it knows the heart. Misery is yours, you who teach legal religion, you penal theologians, you counterfeits. You keep rules like proudly paying a pre-tax tithe and even give a tenth of the herbs in your garden. But you fail to actually do what actually, you fail to do what actually matters. Live in harmony with God's law, His design for life. You fail to do what is right because it's right. You are not merciful but judgmental. And you cannot be trusted to protect those struggling in sin. You should have lived lives of love for others without neglecting the simple instructions of God. You are truly irrational and unthinking teachers. You are so focused on keeping the rules like dietary laws that you fail to understand their purpose to promote health. You're so confused you actually think it would be a virtue to die of starvation than to eat something not on the approved list. Misery is yours, you who teach legal religion, you penal theologians, you counterfeits. You work so hard to make yourselves look good on the outside, but on the inside the heart is full of selfishness, arrogance, and greed. You truly don't understand anything about God's kingdom. The mind, the character, the heart must be cleansed first, and then the outside will also be clean. Misery is yours, you teachers of of legal religion, you penal theologians, you counterfeits. You are like highly polished burial vaults. They look beautiful on the outside, but inside are nothing but the bones of the dead and everything that defiles. You are like that. On the outside, you appear to people as good and righteous, but on the inside, you're full of lies, selfishness, and evil. You are great counterfeits. Misery is yours, you who teach illegal religion, you penal theologians, you counterfeits. You go to great lengths to give praise and honor to the prophets and church leaders of the past. You say, if I would have lived back then, we never would have rejected the prophets or joined in those who killed them. But by such claims, you condemn yourself because you acknowledge that such actions are wrong. Yet by your actions today, you reveal that you are the true descendants of those who murdered the prophets. You're just like them. 
and your sins pile on top of the sins of your forefathers. You slippery serpents. You brood of venomous vipers. You think you can cure yourself with your own snake oil. It's because of your false remedy, your penal legal trickery, that I am sending my spokespersons, instructors, and Bible scholars. You will attack, kill, and crucify some of them. Others you will beat, some physically, some verbally, right in church, running them out of town with beatings and the most vicious gossip. The pure and holy lives that have been sacrificed through history from Abel all the way down to Zechariah, son of Berechiah, who was murdered right in church at the altar, testify the truth of you. But the sad truth is, this generation will reject all this evidence. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you sick and hard-hearted people who have rejected the remedy, killed God's spokespersons, and stoned those who sent you with the cure. How my heart has longed to pull you to safety, like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you would not let me. Look around. I leave your house to you, abandoned without remedy, infected without cure. For I tell you plainly, when you see me next, you will say, he is the one sent by God to reveal God's true character and provide the remedy. I was saying it's, it's difficult to imagine that you know standing in front of the church leadership and saying things like that with a, with a, a tone of love, a tone, a tone of desperately trying to get their attention and arrest them from the path that they're. Yeah, I probably didn't have the right tone. I probably I, I couldn't bring myself to tears. I think he was heartbreaking. Yeah, it's difficult to imagine. Mm-hmm. That's the way it was. Especially the day when they were stoning me for such a right. thing. What do you think about the way I phrased it? Do you see that, that this problem still exists in Christianity today? The same exact problem. This problem began in heaven. If you remember, Lucifer stood up and said, the law of God cannot be obeyed. That, man, that if the law should be broken, every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. Satan's allegations. God has to punish sin. God's the source of inflicted pain and suffering. God is the source of torment and torture. It's a lie. God is the source of life. He's the creator, the designer, the builder. And, and sin deviates from the design, separates us from life, and is the source of death, not God. And Satan knows that. And he knows if you come back to the truth and see God is your heavenly physician, healer, creator, who wants to restore you to health and righteousness, then you'll come to him and trust. So he has to build up ideas that God is instead like a, like a cosmic judge who's trying to find the right and wrong. And, and, he, and, he, and as, a great, as, a, as a judge, he must impose punishments. And, and there you fear going to him. And he keeps a barrier. And the barrier that, that, that we put there, I've read this many quotes, many, many quotes. It's in the, it's in the red the the uh, the burgundy DVD set. The barrier they say is God's anger and wrath. Not what John John the Baptist said. Here is the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. See, our sin separates us from God. But the penal theologians say, no, no, no. It's not our sin. It's God's anger and wrath that separates us. And Christ has to remove His wrath. And that keeps us afraid of Him, and we won't trust Him. Last paragraph in Sunday's lesson. Most of the references to the scribes and Pharisees in the Gospels are negative and considered, and considering the complicity that many, but not all, had in the death of Jesus and the persecution of his followers, the negativity is well deserved. Members of these groups seem to be lurking around the corners and hiding behind trees, just waiting for people to make mistakes so they could enforce the law against them. The image of the Pharisee is so frequently frequent in Scripture that the word is often used as a synonym for legalist. As we look closely at this text, we find that Jesus 
big problem with the Pharisees was not so much that they wanted others to keep the law of Moses, but that they themselves were not keeping it. They were hypocritical. They said one thing but did another. And, and even when they did the right thing, they did it for the wrong reasons. Thoughts about this paragraph? Rank has its privileges. <laughs> and what he means by that is when you're higher in rank, you don't actually have to follow the rules. You get to do what you want. That's what he means by that. That's true in what type of a law system? Imposed. In an imposed law system. That's right. The king doesn't have to follow the rules, right? And in military, that's a, in the military, that was one of the comments. Rank has its privileges. Everybody else has to bivouac out, and the, the, the commander can go sit up in the <laughs> hotel uh, around the corner. See? The, this, this was a classic. Rank has its privileges. Don't have to keep the rules when they're arbitrary. But how does that work if you have natural law? Does it matter what rank you are if you deviate from the laws of respiration, if you don't brush your teeth, if you jump off a building, laws of gravity, so forth? It doesn't matter what rank you are. There is no exception to breaking the design protocols for life. Was their core problem that they taught one thing and did another? Or was their core problem accepting a false idea about God and his design? Yes. James. Um, online listener is asking, do you know of an example of where those that uh, don't believe in the penal substitutionary atonement uh, like you do and still be a Pharisee? Please give an example. Sure. You can be a Pharisee with any model. There's many models out there besides penal substitution. Many people think there's only penal substitution and, um, and moral influence. But there's a, a, a plethora of models. There's uh, Christus Victor. There is uh, um, the, um, oh, let's see. I can't remember all the different atonement models out. There was a lot of different atonement models. What model somebody has as an atonement model doesn't necessarily make them a legalist or not legalist. But it's much easier to fall into legalism when you have a legal theology. It's much easier. I think one of the classics is uh, what I call a heavenly legalism. The, the Pharisees were, were earthly legalism. You've got to get the rules, and you've got to keep all the rules, and you keep all the rules right, then you're going to be righteous. That's, that's the classic Pharisee. What I call the heavenly legalism is that God is required in heaven to go through legal hoops. And, and there has to be legal processes and courtroom scenes, and Jesus is in heaven carrying out, um, you know, we pray to Jesus, he takes our prayers, and, and he applies his blood to our record books, our record books get erased, when God looks at us, he can't see us, because Jesus stands between us and him, hiding us from him, and, 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 and so forth. Uh, legal, this heavenly legal justification in heaven, that uh, when, uh, under the legal model, it's not that we're doing something, God is legally doing something, we accept Jesus, then God legally applies Jesus' account life to our record books, and when he goes to our record books, he doesn't see the true nature of our hearts and characters anymore, he sees the perfect life of Jesus that has now overwritten our record book, but not our hearts, because it, and then he declares us being righteous legally, even though we're still unrighteous in character. This is what's taught over here at the university. And I sat down with the theologians over there, and, I, and, they looked, and we looked at each other straight in the eye, and they told me that righteousness, justification and righteousness is when God declares you to be righteous even though you're not. That was their words, a quote. And I said, so God's lying. No, no, no. And they got real upset with that. God doesn't lie. He's declaring you based on the legal application of Christ's life history to your account in heaven. This is not biblical. This is Legalism. I call it heavenly legalism rather than the person on earth working to keep all the rules. 
and it's false security. No, the true biblical model is, if you look at, at Romans, it says, it says that um, Abraham trusted God and was recognized as righteous. That word recognized, in some version is accounted, in some version is declared righteous, and this is where they get the idea of God declared him righteous. But understand, the natural heart of mankind toward God after sin is, according to Scripture, what? What's the natural attitude of our heart toward God? Enmity. Enmity, distrust, alienation, at war with, against. So when Abraham trusts God, what came first? God's declaration of righteousness or change in, in, in Abraham's heart attitude toward God? Abraham's heart was one. He was won over. He was no longer an enemy. He surrendered. He opened his heart in trust. Thus God recognized he is no longer alienated at war with me. He is now trusting me. He's on my side. And once we open the heart with trust, then the Holy Spirit comes in and all the transformation is just cleanup work. You're over the hurdle. This is why he's recognized as righteous because he was now set right. His heart was now unified and reconciled with God again. That's genuine righteousness. Actual change in the heart of the believer. And that was prior to the law, too, given on Sinai. That's exactly right. It was prior to the, the, the commandments being given. The, what, what you describe as their position is actually what I would call species of spiritual evolution. And when you talk to people who believe in creationism, they will tell you that there is as much faith, quote-unquote, required of believing evolution as there is that other people say it requires of us to believe in creation. Sure. And the basis of that faith is misplaced. That's exactly what you described right here. This is a quote, again, from historic Adventism. I go historic because you'll find that things that were written back in the 19th century and the early part of the 20th century uh, are quite divergent for things written in modern Adventism. There's actually a quite sharp contrast. Earlier, the writings were very much healing model, design God protocol, and now it's infected with this imperial dictator God stuff. But this is uh, Thoughts on the Mount of Blessing, page 123. The effort to earn salvation by one's own works inevitably leads men to pile up human exactions as barriers against sin. For seeing that they fail to keep the law, they will devise rules and regulations of their own to force themselves to obey. All this turns the mind away from God to self. His love dies out in the heart, and with it perishes love for his fellow men. A system of human invention, with its multitudinous exactions, will lead its advocates to judge all those who come short of the prescribed human standard. The atmosphere of the atmosphere of selfish and narrow criticism stifles the noble and generous emotions and causes men to become self-centered judges and petty spies. Isn't that beautifully said? That's exactly what happens. When you move away from God's design to heal and transform to the system of rules that you have to obey, then you become these petty spies and judges. And you become critical. And I can't tell you how many people have been injured in church because of this type of behavior. And left church. And left church because of it. That's right. All right, Monday's lesson. Uh, First paragraph says, Although the scribes and Pharisees sat at Moses' seat, their source of authority for religious instruction extended beyond the Old Testament. The law that the Pharisees utilized consisted of biblical interpretation of leading rabbis. These interpretations were not intended to replace Scripture, but uh, to complement them. At first, they circulated um, orally. Later, they became uh, written down. 
and uh, basically a bunch of human rules. I'm going to go really fast through this. I'm going to get to the next point. Uh, any examples today of human rules that really are not found in Scripture that people put within their Christianity and make people feel guilty if they don't uh, adhere to a certain human standard? I'll just throw them out real quick. Jewelry? Yeah. Jewelry, music, food, clothing. <laughs> okay. I mean, this is, this, there's principles behind all those which are designed for hell. But then we make a list of rules, and what happens is um, a person who has their list of, of, of jewelry is, is, is inappropriate um, will criticize somebody who has a $10 pair of little tiny stud fake gold earrings on uh, while they're wearing a $5,000 mink fur because it's not on the list. Okay? I mean, it's ridiculous, this kind of stuff that happens. Yes? The utilization of one of our church founders with direct statements about what was culturally appropriate at that time and applying to a different time. Oh, I love that. I love that. Bicycles. Bicycles, yeah. Yeah, of course, you know, uh, Ellen, we talked about Ellen White. When, one, of, one of her quotes we ought to use more often. She said, women should, should uh, uh, take their skirts and raise them higher. The, the hem should go higher. Shouldn't we apply that today? <laughs> and, and, and of course the context they were dragging them around in the, in the streets where there was all this horse manure and stuff in the bottom of their dresses and, and people were shooting, spitting tobacco and there's tuberculosis everywhere and so she said raise the hems of your dresses up to get them out of the manure and the, and the tuberculosis infected spit all over the place Okay, that's what she was saying Instead of, because it was considered uh, somewhat lewd almost to show your ankle back in that day you see. So, but she said raise them higher well she's quite right but we wouldn't want to apply that today for the, for, let's raise them higher, higher. Let's just keep going, right? <laughs> All right, uh, fourth paragraph says, um, it does not appear that Jesus had a problem with the Pharisees having their own rules. However, he did have a problem with the elevation of these rules to a, a status of doctrine. No human has the authority to create religious restrictions and elevate them to the level of divine mandate. Now, pause on that sentence. I'm going to read it again. No human has authority to create religious restrictions and elevate them to the, to the level of divine mandate. Any concerns about this statement? This is a dangerous, dangerous sentence. This is a subtle poison in the lesson. It's so deeply hidden that most will accept it and not even realize they've been poisoned. This is a perfect example of taking a lie and hiding it underneath truth. There's truth in this sentence, but there's a rarely deeply subtle lie in this sentence. I want to see if we can pull it out. What's, first off, the truth is obvious. What's the truth? Can a human being make divine decrees? No. That's the truth. That's the absolute truth. But what's the lie hidden in here? A mandate is imposed or, or constructed. It's not inherent. And notice the words, religious restrictions. The lie is God is restrictive. He undermines liberty and makes mandates. It is the idea that God imposes law, rules, and, re- and restrictions upon us to curtail our liberty and control our behavior. This is a lie. It's an it's absolute okay lie. for him to do that. The first lie in Eden, Satan in Eden, first lie, I've got a quote from Scripture, Genesis 3.1. Did God really say, notice what he, you must not eat from any tree in the garden. No. This is the quote from Scripture. Note the lie. God is restrictive. God puts mandates on. You can't eat from anything in this place. You're going to starve to death. This is the lie. When in fact, God told them they could have everything except one tree. And we'll come to why he warned them from that one tree in a moment. God was very liberal. Give them ex- extensive. The entire planet. Think about how big this planet is. Think about you walking on this planet. How long would it take you to walk around this planet? How many trees would you come in contact with? 
There's only one on the whole planet that you can't really take something from. Just get your mind around that for a second. The whole planet was theirs. One tree. One little tree. What? With more land. With more land at the time than we have today, too. It was incredible. Um, The same idea is woven into religion that God is restrictive. For instance, the Sabbath. The Jews presented the Sabbath as a day of greatest restrictions. And sadly, many Seventh-day Adventists do also. But is the Sabbath truly the day of restriction? Or should it be the day of greatest liberty? The greatest, greatest freedom? Now, does God actually give us restrictions? I, I, don't, I know you're afraid of my trick questions, so I'll just go ahead and answer it. <laughs> yes, but notice, God's restrictions are always designed to liberate. Here's a statement from one of the founders of our church, um, and this is what it says. The time will come when we may have... Notice the time will come when we may have to discard some of the articles of diet we now use, such as milk and cream and eggs. But it is not necessary to bring upon ourselves perplexity by premature and extreme restrictions. Wait until the circumstances demand it and the Lord prepares the way for it. Okay, what is being... What is the purpose of the restrictions suggested here? Why? Why would we need to restrict ourselves from certain foods? Contamination factor. Pollution in the environment, contamination, all kinds of steroids and stuff going into it, which actually is going to hurt us. So is it to restrict us that these restrictions are given or to protect us? And when is it necessary to apply it? When it becomes damaging to us to not apply it. Notice. So, and does the restriction to not partake of contaminated foods result in loss of liberties or retention of liberty? Are you following me on this? This is huge. What happens when one is sick? Are they more free or less free? I noticed Linda today, she's got her little knee wheeler up here because she's got a broken foot in a cast. Are you more free or less free? She's less free. She can do less with her, with her broken foot. Okay, when we're sick, we lose liberty. What about the tree of knowledge? Was it to restrict them or to promote their eternal liberty? When they partook the tree, did they get more freedoms or less freedoms? Notice God's restrictions are never restricting us away from something that is good for us. It's always restricting us to promote our health, our welfare, and our freedoms. So when you have the man-made rules, however, man-made rules are always restrictive and taking away liberty and freedom. Gods are always promoting liberty and freedom. Yes. So God wasn't restricting them from the tree. God was restricting them from a situation that they would encounter at the tree. But one could imagine that down the road, when they really grasp the fundamentals, the tree would have been fair game. The fruit on the tree would have been fair game. He was protecting them from an issue they were going to encounter at the tree that they weren't ready for. If you didn't read my blog for this week, uh, I actually put one up this week. Uh, (laughs) I've been busy and I haven't been putting them up as regularly. Uh, It was on the tree of knowledge and good and evil and why was it permitted? And and somebody asked the question, well, isn't it like putting poison in your yard and just waiting for your kid to stumble on it and and put a poison candy bar in your yard and waiting for them to eat and and get killed? No. The tree was put there for one reason we've already talked about, as a protection. Satan could only protect them, approach them at the tree. It's the only place. But it was also put there for their development. God wanted them to develop. He, they were created perfect, but they were created innocent and naive. 
in order for them to be solidified, so settled into God's character and his methods that nothing can shake them, they had to use their own individuality, their own reason, their own comprehension, weigh the issues out, and ultimately choose for themselves what they're going to believe. They would never have that development if they didn't have opportunity to consider the issue that was before the universe. And so the tree was the most mild way God could present them with the issues that they could contemplate in a stress-free environment without being harassed everywhere they went and then come to the conclusion, say, no, no, I, I don't believe that. I believe God is this way. And then they would have developed for all eternity future. So it was for their good, not for their, their temptation, not to, not to set them up. In Tuesday's lesson... It says, um, it talks about in the lesson, it says, after a while, the words of the rabbis gained canonical status. People thought they were as binding as scripture. I uh, took some note of that language. People thought they were as binding as scripture. Are scriptures binding? What is that word binding? What do you do when you bind someone? Do you set them free? Or do you enslave them? Yeah, it's, it's the language binding in scripture. Now, To me, it suggests a system of rules. But is the scripture a code book? The scripture is a code book of deeds to be done and sins to be shunned, as Graham Maxwell used to say. Is that what it is? No. No, it's not. What is the primary purpose, the single most primary, central purpose of the scripture? Revealing Revealing revelation. It is a revelation of God to us. So let me ask you, which is more binding? A medical textbook or the laws of health? Which is more binding? You following me on that? The angels agree, yes. Uh, Which is more binding? It's the the laws of health are more binding. Okay, the, the Bible would be like the medical textbook. It's revealing reality to us, but the Bible itself is not a code book. It's not a list of rules to be done. It's describing God's design, what's happened to it, how we're deviant, what are the consequences for it. And so God's protocols and ways to construct the universe, that is very much binding. And the Bible is trying to lead us back to an understanding of the one who created things so we can trust him. Um, and we've got some more in the lesson. We're going to have to close, though, because we're running out of time. Any co- closing comments or questions? Okay, one of your favorite uh, sayings that Isaiah 13. And part of that says their fear of me, God, of God, is taught by the precepts of men. Oh, I love that. Isaiah twenty nine thirteen. the fear of God is taught by the precepts of men. Exactly. The human teaching makes us afraid of God instead of trusting him. That's, that's right. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do stand so in awe of your true characters revealed by Jesus. When we stop and think that you love us, infinitely, without limit, that you designed us to be like you, and, and yet our minds have, have been so, so infected and defected that we have often mistrusted you and been afraid of you. We ask that your spirit will come and lighten our minds with the truth, dispel the lies, win us to trust, transform us to be like you. May we partake of the perfection that Jesus achieved, that we no longer either live but you live in us and and give us the ability to take this message to our community, to our world, so that the gospel will lighten the world and you will come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.